Get ready. Come on up, Ty. Uh, amen. Before diving in, just want to give you an opportunity to give to this house that we call Northlands and to the ministries that we are partnering with. And I just want to say thank you so much. I was um, just reflecting even this week about how many ministries that we are partnering with, whether, whether in this city or around the world. And those partners are being fueled by what we are helping them fund. And so I just thank you so much for pouring out your time, your energy, your resources. You can give online or you can give cash or check at the boxes at the exit. But I want to dive uh, right in today. Today, I want to preach a message that I'm calling from poverty to prosperity. And uh, we're, we're in an interesting part of our, our um, sermon calendar. We knew that a couple weeks ago, we would be ending our Midnight Oil series. And then next week, uh, sons in the house, please write on the calendar. Next week is Mother's Day. You're welcome. Uh, it's just got to be careful. We love you, but we, we, we forget. Um, and so with that, Peter and Karen Rasmussen are going to be with us. They're friends of the family. Uh, I love their ministry. I love the words that they bring. They're always encouraging. But I say that because we knew that we were going to be ending a series and then having Peter and Karen next week. So it left us with these two Sundays in the middle. And you know when it's dealer's choice here at Northlands, we love to preach the gospel of grace. And so last week, Greg preached a message that really uh, impacted me in, in several ways. But almost immediately when he started preaching and I started seeing kind of the main theme of his sermon, that our debt has been completely cleared, that the sins that we have committed are no longer counted against us, as 1 Corinthians tells us, that the debt has been completely paid by one man, his sacrifice and his blood, Jesus. When I heard that message, I knew immediately what I wanted to talk about today. And I want to talk about really uh, putting a bookend on this plan that God has had since the beginning of time. Scripture says that the Lamb of God was slain before the very foundations of the earth. In other words, God was completely and totally, he predetermined in his heart a plan that you and I would find redemption, that you and I would find this space, that our debt of sin is completely and totally paid off. But that's not the whole plan. Today, I want to talk about the second part of this plan. I want to talk about the fact that you and I, we are called to be co-heirs with Christ. We have not only a debt that's been completely cleared, but we have what Ephesians talks about as a glorious inheritance. I have found uh, in my time growing up in church, one of the things that I have found for church folks and for those who are outside of the church alike, that we have a poverty mentality when it comes to our relationship with God if we do not understand grace. It's this idea of when I screw up, when I mess up, sure, the blood of Jesus wipes the slate clean, but he gives me back the slate and I gotta make sure that I keep it clean. And if I don't, I'm gonna mess it up again and my relationship with God is severed. This is a beggar's man religion. It is not the gospel. And so what I wanna talk about is exactly what Paul talks about in Ephesians, which will take some time to get there, but he moves the church and individuals from a mindset of poverty, a mindset of begging God to fix them and to come back to them as if they've been completely cut off. And what Paul wants to say is, no, 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 as Greg talked about last week, that's been taken care of. What he wants us to do is he wants us to begin to think like kids who have a glorious inheritance. And if you know this, the poor and the rich, they think very differently about the life that they have. That, that's not trying to downplay those that are poor and downtrodden. It's simply an axiom truth that those who have wealth and understand it and manage it well are very different from those who are managing debt. We are no longer managing debt that's been taken care of. And so that's where I want us to go today. Um, here's where I want to begin. If I can be... Um, transparent, uh, maybe I'm going too deep, too fast, right out of the gate, but 
Um, I grew up in the church. I, um, from a young age, probably seven or eight years old, I would say I gave my life to Jesus. Um, I, you know, when the snow was this high growing up, we didn't have a Jesus story book Bible. I was reading King James. Uh, <laughs> and I remember though, even at seven or eight, that, that the word of God became alive to me. And I, he began to speak to me very clearly. My parents tell me that they had many memories of walking into my room. I'm on my little bunk bed and I'm just reading the Bible to myself. And I remember in those early stages of my walk with Jesus, there was just this constant feeling of acceptance by the Father. I could feel his love for me in a deep and powerful way. That didn't last though, because when I was about nine years old, um, I was exposed to the very first time of pornography. And uh, I, it was from an older friend, he was only a couple years older than me, and I, I give him grace because he was only 11 years old himself, and we were just two boys who had no idea what we had come across. He found it on his father's Windows 98 computer. It was at a time when the internet was definitely been out, but probably in the last decade, images and videos started getting more and more popular on the internet. And my friend found this on his dad's computer. And I remember looking at these graphics, looking at these images, and I could not turn my eyes away. I was completely and totally intrigued and desired, but I had no idea what I was actually looking at. And I remember as soon as the screen turned off, I felt a rush of shame and guilt and pain that I had never felt before in my short life. Up until that point, I would say I've had a shame that was external in the sense of every nine-year-old boy knows what it's like to rough house in his parents' house, break something, and then have that scold from your mom. But this was different. This was not an external shame put on me. This was something that came within me. And I felt incredibly and extremely broken. For the first time, I, I understood when I had read Genesis 1 what it meant when Adam and Eve hid in their shame. I did not want help, I wanted isolation. I told nobody about what happened that day. And I remember going home that week and I remember praying to God, repenting and feeling remorse and genuinely wanting to make this promise, I will never do that again, God, and I promise you, as God truly was my witness, I meant every word except I wish I could tell you that was the first and only time that I viewed pornography, but that was not going to be the end of that story. Over 12 years, I was in poverty and trapped by this thing. It became like one of my close friends and I hated it like my worst enemy. It promised me comfort, but only fed me poison. And worse than all of that, I felt like every time I did it, God walked away and he was a million miles away from me. And I felt like I had to fix myself. I had to try and make it better. And no matter how many times, again and again and again, I made the exact same promise, knowing in the back of my mind, I was not gonna be able to keep the promise, and yet I made the promise anyway. I knew that I was just gonna repeat this cycle again and again and again and again, making sacrifices and hollow promises. And this is what I thought the gospel was. This is what I thought God's perfect plan was for Christians. That we're not like the world, we struggle with our sin, but, but we have the blood of Jesus, so he's gonna wipe the slate clean, give it back to us, and then we'll be able to try our again and try a little bit harder. And for 12 years, I lived in that state of sin, feeling God far away, and begging him to come back to me. That is not the gospel. But have I described any of your relationship with the Lord? Have you ever made a promise like this to God? Have you ever broken that promise? 
again and again and again? When it happens, do you feel like God is walking away from you? Do you feel that when it comes to your relationship, sure, he loves you, but you're far more an object of disappointment than you are of his affections? Are you exhausted by this kind of religious practice, this kind of religious duty of making promises again and again and again? Have you ever thought about walking away from faith altogether because you said, if this is God, I clearly am not good enough and I can't do it. This is what Hebrews 10 talks about. And I won't go too long into Hebrews because this is what uh, Greg covered a lot of last week. So I would encourage you to watch that sermon. But Hebrews 10, 11 says it very plainly. See if this uh, sounds familiar. Day after day, every priest, every person stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same old sacrifices, the same old promises, hoping that it would finally fix him once and for all. And yet the sadness of that verse is that it ends, which can never take away sins. To put the nail on the coffin even more, verse five of this chapter, if you just go up a little bit in your Bible, it says, therefore, this is Christ. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire. In other words, God's not interested in your fake and hollow promises. Verse 10, with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. So not only are we trying to fix this relationship in our own strength with God, but God goes, those promises I see right through them and I'm not interested in them. They do not work. And that's why he's not interested in them. The reason he's not pleased with them is because they do not fix you. They do not take away the sin. And we know this, and it says so uh, just as much in uh, verse, uh, ch uh, chapter 10, verse two. It says, we know it doesn't fix us because otherwise, otherwise would they have not stopped being offered. For the worshipers, you and me, would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. And yet, verse three, but those sacrifices are annual reminders of sin. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, not only do we make these promises, but the Lord shows us that when it comes to the law, when it comes to following the Bible, you and I are not good enough and we couldn't do it even on our best day. The law, it was given to us, this rule was given to us for a specific reason and it was not to, to help us as a roadmap to our life. If you just follow the 10 commandments, it's going to fix you. No, the law was given plainly to say, if you wanna know what holiness is, here's the definition. And you wanna know why God made people uh, sacrifice animals and bulls and goats? Because he wanted to show them, I don't care how many animals you kill, kill I don't know, care how much sweat you put into those sacrifices, your works are not good enough to fix you. That's why the law was given. The law was given for a single purpose, to show you and me that we needed a savior named Jesus. People believe the lie that the law is some sort of roadmap for life. If you just follow the 10 commandments, if you just try your best to live right, then you will find your way to God. And I promise you, it will never work. Sinners come to this path that is the law. They look at the path and at least they have the decency to be honest with themselves and say, I could never walk like that. So I'm just going to abandon faith altogether. People walk away from faith, not because of Jesus, but because they never saw Jesus. They only saw the law. 
And even worse than the sinner who comes to the path of the law is the self-righteous man who I was. I looked at the path and said, I think I can actually walk this. I think I can actually live this. And as Jesus said to the Pharisees, what a blind man I was. Like I was crawling on my hands and knees down this path, convincing myself that I was actually inching my way to God. Just a couple steps backward, but making traction a few steps ahead. It is blind and you are not making your way to God. You are walking in circles. This is why Jesus said the way to God is not a path, but by a person. The law is not a roadmap. It is a mirror. And when you look into the mirror, it reflects your current state. And it said plainly, you are not good enough and you could not fix yourself. But when Jesus came, he looked into the mirror and for the first time, the law had a perfect reflection. And so Jesus made the claim to us, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. If you want to come to God, it comes through me. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8 says it plainly. First, he said, this is Jesus, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though that we, they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. And Jesus set aside the first, the law, to establish a second and better way. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus. Jesus Christ once and for all. Verse 12, but when this priest, Jesus, not like us, had offered up for all time a single sacrifice of sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. In verse 14, for by one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Amen. So I want to settle a few things before we dive into Ephesians. You might be protesting if you're anything like me when you first heard this message. So Tyler, what are you saying? Are you saying that God is not mad at me anymore when I sin? So I can just go and screw up and God's wrath is not going to come on me in my sin. Is that what you're saying? Here's what I'm saying. God hates sin. God burns with an anger against your sin and against my sin. God absolutely hates your sin. But what I am saying is, is that God took all of his wrath and he took all of the sin past before time or before Genesis three, when it started and into the future, before we have lived out our full lives, he took all of sin and he put it on the shoulders of Jesus. And when all of sin had been collected and put on Jesus, God poured out his wrath and he did not stop pouring out his wrath until sin was completely and totally totally destroyed. And when sin had been completely and totally, as Isaiah said, it took, it, it was pleasing to God to crush this sin offering. And when it was completely and totally done and the wrath of God was completely and totally poured out, Jesus looked to heaven and he said, father, it is finished. Yeah. Amen. So what I am saying, so what I am saying is that God no longer has any more wrath to pour out whether you sin yesterday, whether you fall short today, or whether you sin tomorrow, all of that sin was collected, put on the shoulders of Jesus, and dealt with 2,000 years ago. We no longer are held to that sin. 
You might say, well, Tyler, so are you telling me that I don't have to repent? Are you trying to tell me that when I sin, when I fall short, I don't have to do something to fix my relationship with God, that God's not interested in these sacrifices of repentance, these promises, that he's not, he's not far away and I have to convince him to come back to me? Are you saying that repentance is not needed? What I am saying, just like we talked about the law, the law had a single purpose and it was a mirror, not a roadmap. We have to see it for what it is. And that sacrifices were, were a symbol that our works were not gonna fix ourselves. You have to understand what repentance is. Repentance is not a sacrifice that is bringing God back to you. Repentance is the evidence that God is very near to you and he is working in you. It is a good work, and I will say it again. Your repentance to God is not a sacrifice that convinces God to come back to you. The fact that you can repent is evidence that the Holy Spirit of God is in you, that he is close to you. He was never leaving, never going uh, to forsake you. He is right here. And every time you repent, it is evidence to yourself that God is with me. He's not abandoning us. And so I want to say it louder for the people in the back. Your sin does not cause God to recoil and your good works are not, or your repentance is not cause that God will love you more. Your sin is not making God take a step back and when you repent or do good works, he's not loving you more because of it. That is not why we have good works. In other words, your works, evil or good, your works are not moving the heart of God. Your faith in Jesus, that is what is moving the heart of God. Amen. And because I hate it so much, I have to go after religion of works. Because I was, I'll just say it plainly, this is where I was stuck for years of my life. When I was in addiction, when I was continually in this cycle of sin, of making my apologies, making my sacrifices of repentance, hoping that God would love me more, there's two heresies that people believe when it comes to your works, whether they're evil works or they're good works. These are the two heresies of religion of works. And here, here's the first one, this idea. You say, okay, Tyler, so when I sin, are you telling me, are you telling me that I don't have to do something in order to fix myself? Are you telling me that there's not something that I need to do to make amends as we've been talking about? That idea, the claim that someone says you need to fix yourself in order to do that is a heresy, and here's why. Because your evil works cannot dilute the blood of Jesus. And what I mean by that, think about this, work it out with me. This idea that, you know what, Tyler, I know what Jesus claimed, that it was the finished good work of the cross, but I'm over here doing something so evil, so wicked, so depraved, and then I'm going to bring it to God, and you're telling me that this doesn't dislodge the relationship that I have with God in any way. What you're claiming is that your evil work is more powerful than the finished good work of Jesus Christ. And I wanna set you free, you're not that powerful. You're not that strong. Your evil works do not dilute the blood of Jesus. And in that same way, your good works cannot strengthen the blood of Jesus. In other words, this idea of saying, no, no, you know what? I know that's true, but I'm going to prove how devoted I am to God. My good works, I'm gonna show God, because you know what they say in the religious society, that you judge a tree by its fruit. I want you to know that your good works, claiming that they somehow add to the cross, it is another heresy. The first one talks about the, and claims that the cross is powerless to deal with your evil works, but the second one, it claims that the cross is insufficient to deal with it. 
insufficiency and powerlessness. These are heresies. The cross of Christ is all powerful. It cannot be beaten. It will not be overcome. And your good works add nothing to its sufficiency. It stands by itself as the greatest work in all of history. And nothing you can do can change the course of that work in our lives. This is a poor man's question. This idea, when we come to this conclusion, when we come to this moment, what ends up happening is people go, okay, so Tyler, you're telling me, just have to repeat myself again and again, you're telling me that I can just, you're just gonna let people go out and sin and it changes nothing when it comes to their relationship with God. Is that what you're saying? And then they go, they go well, then what's the point? Why can't we just go on sinning? What's the point of doing any sort of good works if it doesn't benefit our relationship with God anymore? And that is a poverty mentality. This idea of going, oh man, you don't understand the, the fruitless deeds as we'll talk about in Ephesians that sin is. And you don't understand the power of good works in our life. And that is why we have to get to the letter of the Ephesians and understand this incredible plan that God has for us that he calls grace and the two parts that we talk about that he cleared all of our debts, but also this glorious inheritance that we have. And these are the good works that we are called to. So let's get into the letter of the Ephesians. Are you guys still with me? Yes. All right. Ephesians chapter one, we, yeah, we're gonna scream through six chapters. I know what I'm doing. Don't worry about it. Come with me on this journey. We're not gonna be here till dinner. It's fine. We're gonna get through it. Paul says this, and in, in, in starting in verse four to verse six, all he wants to say is he goes, you need to understand that there was a plan before the foundations of the earth were made. The Lamb of God was slain, and this plan was in the heart and mind of God before he put any human being on earth. And so we dive right in. Verse four, it says this. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. I'll stop there for a minute because we talked about predestined and Tyler's bringing out predestination at a church of, oh, come on. I am convinced not just from what we read in Ephesians, but when it comes to studying the scriptures and seeing the nature and character of God, I do not believe with all of my heart that God is up in heaven playing eternal cosmos duck, duck, damn, and saying, hey, you're going to heaven and you're going to hell. I just do not believe that. Because when I read, not just the fact, as I read the scriptures about God and his nature, and I cannot say, the God who says, hey, I want you to know me as father, and I'm the loving and compassionate one, slow to anger, abounding in love, that he would play that kind of game. But even furthermore, when we understand in Ephesians, God is not talking about a person or persons, but he is talking about a plan. In other words, he is not saying that he predetermined some for hell and some for heaven. He is saying, I have predetermined in my heart how I will deal with man. I predetermined a plan, not persons. I predetermined a way in which I would deal with man. And the reason I'm confident in it is because Paul talks the entire time in Ephesians about this plan. If you're wondering, am I one of the guys that's supposed to go to hell? No, there is an opportunity for you to receive and put your faith in Jesus. And so he first starts by saying, this was the plan of God, the predetermined plan of God from the beginning of time. And then he dives in starting in verse seven. And he talks about the part of the plan, part one, clearing our debts, which Greg covered last week. And I've touched on in Hebrews, but let's read. It says this in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, accordance, uh, in accordance with the riches of God's grace 
What he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the, time, when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Stop there. I was reading a study this week and a church of our size about this size. We represent about $5 million worth of consumer debt. That's just uh, paying off school, cars, European trips. It's not including our houses, about $5 million here. Um, it is incredibly good news. Could you imagine with me, if we all went home, we logged into our credit card accounts and we read a $0 balance. That'd be good news. Hey man. So <laughs> Some of us would go out and celebrate by putting a trip to Europe on our card, wouldn't we? <laughs> and we're back. Consumerism. Stop it, guys. Stop it. That's good news. And I believe that so many of us, when it comes to the Christian faith, we stop right here because, man, what a dream to be completely and totally debt-free. But could you imagine if we also went home and we checked our savings account? And instead of seeing our usual amount that's in there, we just see a note from the bank that just says, hey, there was too much money. We had to take liberty and open three or four more accounts to house all the money that you now have in your savings account. Greg talked about freeing debts. I was so tempted to make my sermon. I was so tempted to make my sermon because his, his sermon message was, what's so amazing about grace? I was gonna like tag off and be like, you think that's amazing? Just to like totally not be like, you think what he said was cool? We have been given... I've lost you. I'm coming back. Sorry. I just wanted to be in. This is what goes through my mind. We have to dream bigger. We have to believe more. That God not only wants us to break even, to be free of our debts, but that he has given us a glorious inheritance for you and I to access and to go on a spending spree. And so then Paul says, okay, I'm done talking about freeing debts. And he goes into verse 11. He begins to talk about the inheritance of the plan. In him, we were also, so in light of what I just said, but also this, chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, the apostles uh, and, and the disciples, might be for the praise of his glory. But then he turns and he points to all of us as we read, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. What truth? The gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I love that verse because essentially what God says, he says, this, this plan that we have has been from the beginning of time. And it's not just the Father's plan that Jesus executed, but the Holy Spirit also comes into play. God says, I want you to know this plan, this promise that I am making, I will not back down on my promise. And just so you know that I'll never break this promise of leaving you or forsaking you, I'm putting my own spirit down as the deposit. In other words, if God breaks his promise, you can keep his spirit. That's impossible for God. This promise will never break and will always stand. 
So then Paul says in verse 15 of chapter one, for this reason, in other words, everything that we just talked about, for this reason, verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. For what reason? So that you may know him better, know him better in this way. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in this, in his holy people. Ah, oh, Tyler, holy people. He's not talking about me. You don't know what I've done. Verse one of this chapter begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Who's he writing the letter to? To God's holy people. So he's just tagging and saying, I'm talking about you if you're wondering. And then it says, and his incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. In other words, as we look at this chapter one, there was a plan from the beginning of time. He talked about this plan in two parts, that your debt is completely clear and that you have a great inheritance. And at the end of the chapter, he is saying, it is my heart, my passion, my life work to make sure that every believer knows plainly they have an inheritance and they must spend it. This is what pleases God. So in chapter two, are you still with me? Here we go. We're just reading Ephesians. Come on, guys. Let's do this. The plan is at work. Chapter two is all about this plan and explaining it. And listen to ver the first three verses. Notice the past tense. In other words, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you've called out to him as your Lord and Savior, he is not talking about you in these first three verses. But listen to the past tense. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. It's not you. All of us who also lived, past tense, among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest were by nature deserving of wrath. Verse four starts off with a bang. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved and by, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, not just an inheritance, but we've been given authority as we sang about in worship today in Christ Jesus, uh, verse seven, in order that in the coming ages, he might show you the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Verse eight, say it with me, it's amazing. <laughs> For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, it is a gift from God. Verse nine, just so we're very clear once again, Paul, like me, belabors the point, not by works so that no one can boast. So far, he's addressed our past and who we were. Now he's just given us clearly the process of how this plan works itself out. And if you wanna know why good works matter so much, he begins to give you a hint of where we're going in the letter of Ephesians in verse 10. He says this, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared, as we've already talked about in the plan, in advance for you and I to do. So 
Chapter two is all about this plan and process, and it brings us to chapter three of Ephesians. And I just wanna read a few verses, starting in verse seven, because now what we come to is this inheritance is ours, we must access it, and he wants to talk about why the church is so important when it comes to this inheritance. It says this, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. This is Paul talking. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles. What was he gonna preach? The boundless riches of Christ. And here was his mission. And to make it plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, to administer this great inheritance, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, that's important because that's us. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you're ever wondering, am I trying to fix a relationship with God? Verse 12 says it plainly. In him and through faith in him, we can approach God with freedom and with confidence. Now, that's the first half of Ephesians. We're halfway there. I'm <laughs> that's just my introduction, everybody. I'm excited. No, 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 I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. The beginning of chapter four, the very first uh, verse is so incredibly important. Now, in my translation, it says then, but in your translation, if you read maybe ESV, it'll say therefore, or perhaps even a translation in light of. So it begins like this in, in my uh, translation. I'm reading NIV. As a prisoner for the Lord then or perhaps therefore and in light of, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What calling? This great inheritance. In other words, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, in light of everything that I just shared with you, that there was a plan from the very beginning of time that you and your debt would be completely cleared and that's completely dealt with and now you have access to a glorious inheritance. He is saying, in light of that, Paul, the rest of Paul in this letter is saying, I must move you from thinking with a poverty mentality and that you would begin to think with a mindset of prosperity. Therefore, in light of all of this, I urge you, don't live like this, but rather live as someone who knows the inheritance that they've been given and had access to. That's the point of chapter four. Now, chapter four, there's two parts that I wanna highlight. Chapter 11 to about 13, I'm gonna read that for us right now, and it's in regards to the church, as Paul said in chapter three, to be the administrators of this great inheritance. And uh, I've been completely and totally convicted by this. It's made my purpose in life abundantly clear of what I'm gonna give my life to, and I'm gonna invite you to give your life to this as well as the church. It says this, chapter four, verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers for this reason, to equip his people for works of service. What kind of service? Good works, your inheritance. To equip the saints to access their inheritance. Paul goes, my purpose in life is now crystal clear. I stand with other apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. We are gonna make sure that you know your pin number to the account. I am going to walk with you to make sure that you access that account, that you realize that you have that access and how to use your monies well, if I could say it that way. And so he continues. 
to equip his people for works of ministry so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Not just one part, understanding that your debt is completely free, that's good news, but the fact that you've been given an inheritance and he wants you to mature in using that inheritance. That's amazing news, that's amazing grace. And so we as a church body and me as one of the leaders here, I'm committed with the elders and the deacons and the grace team leaders and the community group leaders. I want to give my life to ensuring that every single person who comes through these doors realizes that not only has your sin been completely and totally dealt with and it's been completely and totally taken away, but that you've been given authority and you've been given a great wealth by God himself, that you are a co-heir with Christ and we're gonna spend the rest of our time as a church equipping one another to access this inheritance. And so we're gonna finish out chapter four with just an overview because Paul goes not just corporately how we use this inheritance, but for you, how you are called to use and access this inheritance. Paul makes it plain in in, uh, chapters, or verse 17 and 31, he just lays this overview out and it'll come up on the screen. He says, just so we're clear, don't think like the old man who's trapped in his sin or trapped by bad religion with a poverty mentality. Recognize the fact that those who are in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. This is how a poor man thinks about his relationship with God, that we would lie, that we would give ourselves to anger, that we would cheat and steal, that we would gossip, that we would give ourselves over to revenge, to promiscuity and to drunkenness because those who do not realize the relationship that they have with God, they will bite and chew and do whatever they can to fight their way to God in order to do it. That's what the poor man does. But we are in a place of rest. We are not poor. We are prosperous. And therefore, we give ourselves over to the truth of God. We're not filled with anger, but with peace. We have no need to steal because we have a great inheritance, so we give ourselves over generously, not just with our finances and our resources and our circumstances, but with our words, words of encouragement. We have no need for gossiping and backbiting. We don't have to give ourselves over to revenge. We can take a higher road and give ourselves over to forgiveness. We don't need to give ourselves over to promiscuity or sexual immorality. Why? Because we have the fruit of the Spirit in us, and it gives us self-control, and we do not have to wish away our pain with spirits from this world and give ourselves over to drunkenness so that we might feel some sense of pleasure, but only masking our actual pain. We can be sober-minded and be led by the very Spirit of God who will lead us into real pleasure and truth. Amen. And so chapter five begins to answer the question that I began with. So Tyler, so you're telling me that if I sin, nothing changes with my relationship with God. What keeps me from just sinning and screwing up all the time and not caring about it? What good are good works? Paul answers that in chapter five. Let's read it starting in verse eight. For you were once in darkness, but now you are a light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, and righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. I love that. Verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's a poor man's question to ask what, what's the point of no longer sinning? What's the point of good works? Paul goes, in light of everything that I've just told you, in light of the inheritance that you and I have, which are our good works poured out. Are you seriously telling me that you would waste a day giving yourself over to fruitless deeds like sin? 
The time is short. Our lives are but a vapor. I don't have a minute or a day to waste. When I sin, it changes nothing in my relationship with God, but I walk away from sin because I don't have time or taste for it. Verse 15 says, Paul goes, now be very careful then how you live. Not as the unwise, the poor man, but as the wise, the one who understands the riches of his glorious inheritance. Verse 16, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand the Lord's, what the Lord's will is. Your good works are the inheritance that you've been given. We are not fighting to fix our relationship with God and pull him down closer to us. We have been given a great inheritance and we are pulling that inheritance down from heaven and letting it invade earth here now. Every time you step out and you do something good, every time you do something in generosity or an encouragement to somebody who is your neighbor or even your enemy, every time you do that, you are spending your inheritance in the kingdom of God is being revealed. That is why good works matter so much. Are you gonna waste your time with fruitless deeds of sin? Surely not. So chapter six, Paul said it spends that whole chapter, we'll start in 10, uh, we'll read verse 10 to 11. We'll go there. Chapter six, it says this. Paul begins to talk about this message and he says, now whatever you do, guard this message. Fight tooth and nail. Do not go back to the prison of poverty. Let nothing pull you away from this message, this truth. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. What is the devil's scheme? It would be so like the devil to convince you that you have to be paying off a debt because for every day you focus on a debt that's already been paid is a day that you're not accessing your inheritance. So Paul says, guard this message, fight tooth and nail. Put on this helmet of salvation. Let no one take this salvation from you. Let it sit in your mind and let it be unmoved. Put on the righteousness of Christ. He held in it on the cross on his chest your shame and your guilt and your condemnation so that on your chest now sits his righteousness. Belt up your waist with his truth, this truth, this gospel message that your debt has been completely and totally cleared and you've been given an incredible inheritance from Christ. This word of God, every time the enemy comes, know that it is your sword and you fight the devil's scheme with this. Every time he comes at you, attacking you and reminding you with his lies, you fight and push him back with the sword of the spirit, the word of God. This is what the Bible says. And when you need his protection, you know that it's not your works that brings him near, but it is a shield of faith that pushes back any lie of the devil that would convince you of poverty. And the beautiful news is that this church, our feet are wrapped in this gospel. So wherever we put our feet in this city, the kingdom of God is advancing. Your life and my life is a proclamation of this good news. And so he ends chapter six with this prayer. Verse 18, he says this, and pray in the spirit, all of us here, on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, to be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. In other words, let us pray that none of us go back to poverty, but that we stay recognizing we have access to this glorious inheritance. 
Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that um, I will fearlessly make known what? The mysteries, this inheritance of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Pray without ceasing, church, that not one of us would go back to this kind of poverty. We are not beggars begging for bread. What do I want for you? What do I want us to do? I want us to stop focusing on a debt that's already been erased. And I want us to go out on a spending spree with the inheritance that we've been freely given. This is what is pleasing to God. You wanna know what pleases God? Not that you get your life together. That's Christ's job. And he is making us more and more into his image every single day. What will please God is that you access this inheritance with freedom and with confidence and you go on a spending spree. We are not fighting for God's affections. I do not work so that I may have my father's affections. I have his affections. And the most, the most natural response to somebody who is loved by their heavenly father is that good works come out of them like a stream and a flowing river. Not because they're my works, but because they're his. So this week, or perhaps later on, when you feel like you've fallen short, when you've sinned and you've messed up, what I wanna challenge you with is instead of beginning those religious duties and rituals and making a sacrifice to God of how sorry you are for how bad you messed up, instead of that, why don't you go on a spending spree of good works? Not because your good works amend something with God. You have nothing to do to strengthen the cross of Christ but because every time you do a good work, it reminds you that you have an identity as one of his children and you understand what you have access to. It's to help you in your mind, in your heart, not his. This is why at Northlands, if you come through our membership class or you go through About Us, when we talk about grace, we ask, what does that mean for us? How do, how do we use grace in our discipleship program? We say it this way, we are not discipling you towards your behavior, we're discipling you towards your identity. We are all gonna mess up. We are all going to screw up. And what we do in that moment matters. We will not put a yoke of poverty on you but rather we will call you up to once again access this incredible inheritance. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus, I want you to know that you have a relationship with him, not because of anything you do for him, but because of what he's done for you. And so if we could just bow our heads, I'm gonna close in prayer, but if you're here today and you said, Tyler, I don't fully understand everything that you covered, but I just know that I'm tired of feeling like I'm trapped, I'm imprisoned, I'm enslaved to sin, and I can't stop no matter how much I promise myself that I will. If you wanna be free from that and this mindset of poverty and begging your way to God or just feeling like you're barely getting by, I want to meet you in the front lobby with some of our leaders because I believe it is time for you to surrender your life to Jesus. I believe the Holy Spirit is at work in this place right now and he is calling hearts and minds to ourselves. Now, if you're here today and you are a Jesus follower and you have never considered, never considered the fact that you have access to this inheritance, I wanna give you an opportunity to remind yourself once again and say, Father, today is the last day that I beg you for bread. 
when I know for a fact you called me to feast at your table. Holy Spirit, thank you for all these things. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the letter to the Ephesians and how we might be able to access this inheritance as we read these words from Paul. Holy Spirit, I ask now that you go beyond my words, beyond the lyrics that we have in worship and that you would begin to minister to hearts and souls that are here. Holy Spirit, teach us to be a church. Let it be a prophetic sign that we are a church that not only have clarity of this inheritance, but that we access it and we give it away freely. Lord, I ask that this inheritance that we have would be poured out in Norcross and Peachtree Corners and the surrounding areas of Gwinnett that where we are, that the gospel is completely and totally covering our feet and that we would recognize this week it is our job to go on a spending spree and invest this great inheritance that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.